Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, here's your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Welcome back to Preachers on Preaching. I am so glad you're here for this conversation. It's one that I cannot wait to share with you. This episode, my guest is Reverend Otis Moss III. Otis is one of the greatest preachers I've ever heard. I've had the honor of sitting on panels with him a couple of times, and uh, every time that I hear him talk, I want simply to shut my mouth and listen to him. He lights a room up. He's brilliant and uh, just a very, very thoughtful person, brings a lot of intentionality to his work. One of the things I came away from this conversation thinking is it's time for me to take my own call as a preacher a little more seriously. He's got that kind of effect on a person. We talk in this conversation about all kinds of things, about his start uh, as the senior pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ here in Chicago during the middle of the scandal, the kind of media-generated, Fox News-generated scandal that erupted when bits of his predecessor, Dr. Jeremiah Wright, another amazing preacher, bits of Dr. Wright's sermons were taken out of context and blown up and the media tried to use them to portray uh, then-Senator Obama in a bad light. So we touched upon that was what that was like for Otis to, to start in the middle of that storm at a new church. We also touch upon the ways in which the stigma of mental health in congregations is changing and being lifted, and Otis has an absolutely remarkable story about his own family and the ways in which he's tried to lead from the pulpit in talking about mental health issues and questions. One of the other things that happens in this conversation and and, uh, something that you ought to listen to the very end for is Otis doing an impersonation of his very favorite preacher, Reverend Dr. Gardner C. Taylor. Um, And Otis describes Dr. Taylor's style as James Earl Jones, the voice of the actor, James Earl Jones, wrapped up in Shakespearean poetry. So you get to hear Reverend Otis Moss III impersonating Gardner C. Taylor who sounds like James Earl Jones wrapped up in Shakespearean poetry. That's a a, a real gift, I promise you. Uh, Finally, before we start, let me tell you that we do want to hear from as many preachers as we can. I want to talk to people from as wide a variety of backgrounds as we can reach, not just UCC ministers, as is the case this week, two of us talking to one another, not just other mainline Protestants. We want to be speaking to preachers from all over our country. If you know of a preacher who would be a good guest for Preachers on Preaching, please email me. The email address is preachers at christiancentury.org preachers at christiancentury.org and we want to thank the christian century for sponsoring this podcast of course you can also find the contact information for preachers on preaching at the christian century website which is christiancentury.org my conversation with otis begins with a snippet about five minutes long from a sermon he preached on father's day just about i think two to three days after the tragedy of the shootings at the emmanuel ame church in charleston this is a sermon that he preached with his father another wonderful preacher otis moss the second so the two of them have a tradition of preaching a sermon on father's day together every year so one of the things you get to hear in this interview is what it sounds like when you've got a sermon all planned out and then you have to drop everything and shift gears in the face of uh, an event in the life of our country or in the life of a church that makes you have to abandon your manuscript so you get to hear otis and his dad do that really well together We begin now with the voice of Reverend Otis Moss II introducing his son, Reverend Otis Moss III. My time is is up. Not only that, but my time on earth is almost up. And it's in your hands. And your generation and your children and your children's children to carry on. Tell us what you feel and see and hear and know. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. That it is in the sanctuary of Charleston a sanctuary that was created out of the crucible of pain known as the South. 
black faith is always engaged in prophetic uh, grief. Prophetic grief states that tragedy does not inform my theology, but theology informs my tragedy. We have, as a people, learned how to stare in the abyss and not fall into the pit of despair. The beauty of our faith is that we can sing the blues, yet know the power of the gospel. Yes. The very nature of our faith is carved from the splintered wood of an unfinished democracy. Our faith is not written by Luther, Calvin, Wesley, or the heralds of the Reformation. Our faith came of age when strange fruit, fruit was the delicacy of the South. Yeah. Our faith has been and is still powerful because we created our own seminaries and institutions. Yeah. I'm not talking about Howard or ITC or Shaw or Payne. I'm talking about seminaries down by the riverside Three. next to the drinking gourd. I'm talking about a seminary where Sojourner Truth was elected president of the seminary. Howard Thurman became the dean of the chapel. Yeah. Dr. King became the director of justice studies. Malcolm X served as lecturer of black theology. Yeah. We have a faith not birthed in the small hamlets of Europe, but in the souls of displaced Africans who forged a home in the strange land called North America. Those looking on the outside were confounded by the resolve of families who dined in sorrow's kitchen and were forced by the heralds of affliction to lick all the pots clean. Yes. It was Chris Matthews, the celebrated pundit and commentator on MSBC. He was astonished and confounded that these families could look Dylan Roof in the face yes. and say we forgive you. He said, I've never seen anything like this. Well, These are some really Christian people. I said in my mind, you've never been to a black church. You've never seen black faith. You see, my response is that there's power in our faith. This is not faith where your Jesus is an appendage or a scarf to wrap around your neck. This faith is one that is being, that your faith is tied to the sacred and your life is tied to the divine. This faith is a faith where miracles are not anomalies, where redemption is not a fairy tale. Deliverance is, not, is more than a descriptive adjective, but an active verb permeating the soul of every believer. This faith is where Tubman learned her freedom. Douglas discovered abolition. Du Bois discovered his intellect. Zora found her literary power. Langston crafted poetic brilliance. Ida B. Wells discovered journalistic integrity. This is the faith where dreams are ignited. Visions are made flesh. Declarations become edicts of hope and breathe life into lifeless bodies. The faith of the families of Charleston is the real story. Yeah. Their resolve and prophetic power and deep spirituality is not an anomaly, but the manifestation of Africanity and Christianity joining together to produce a faith that says this little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine this type of faith is a, has a soundtrack of amazing grace playing in heavy rotation from the radio station of WSOUL radio. Paul's word, Paul the apostle, the one who was mistaken for an African citizen, pins the words with such fervor to give us what prophetic grief is all about. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Prophetic grief is watching a young black man with his arms around his two sisters. His mother just died, but looking into the camera and saying, I know we are going to make it. Prophetic grief is watching a woman who lost her mother say, my heart does not have space to hate. Prophetic grief is watching people who spent time in church and their parents poured into them and they felt the power of God. This is prophetic grief. Prophetic grief says I forgive you. And this message of Charleston, I do not write any more stories about Dylan Roof. We need stories about Pinckney. We need stories about Middleton. We need stories about nine prayer warriors. Don't write about Roof. 
know if you want to learn prophetic grief, you need to look at the people of Charleston as they gather together and say nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not your bullets, not your hate, not your pain, not your anger, not anything you throw at us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. I bid you good day. May the Lord bless you real good, but nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Prophetic grief. God has called God's people to grieve prophetically. Not pathetically, but prophetically. The door of this church is open. Otis Moss, welcome to Preachers on Preaching. Oh, it's great to be here, Matt. Thank you so much. Oh, it's our pleasure and delight. I'm excited for this conversation. I've been looking forward to it. We just heard a clip from a sermon that you and your father preached together that was him introducing you after his portion or one of his portions from the sermon. I want to get into the content of this shared sermon, but I'd like to begin just by talking about your experience preaching with your dad. In my experience, that's an unusual thing, a father and a son in the pulpit together. It's the first time I've ever seen it. What does it feel like? It is probably one of the great joys of my life. I've been doing it with my father for 15 years now. Uh, I think about 15, yeah, I think it's about 15 years now. Every Father's Day, we preach together. I made the suggestion when, when I started at my first uh, assignment in Augusta, Georgia. I said, I would love to preach with you. And it, in Augusta, it was a big event. It was almost a running joke uh, that when Father's Day comes around, um, it was going to be similar to Easter, uh, <laughs> that uh, people from all around uh, would show up and show up very early uh, to see this father and son uh, ministry. Um, and what were they going to say this year? Do you write them together? We write them together. Now, it takes a, it takes a while because we have to really plan out ahead of time. Um, he will say, you know, I'm looking at the scripture. I've been meditating on the scripture. What do you think? Um, and then we kind of go back and forth from there. I said, well, I've been looking at this. What do you think? And then we begin to, and the ideas germinate from there uh, with, the, with the imagination. Um, sometimes I'll write a part that he will preach and he will write a part that I will preach. He said, I think that works better for you to say this um, and then I would say, well, that's a good piece. I want to write this for you to add this to what you are, you are saying. So we end up having this real tandem. And it's very, very, very organic, especially even in the, in the preaching of it uh, many times. Um, my father has such a wealth of information at the tip of his tongue because of his experiences, um, because of his just amazing mind. Uh, he is a walking encyclopedia, and I mean, he is, was a part of the civil rights movement, was a civil rights leader. That's been part of his uh, narrative and life. He served with Dr. King's father, right? Uh, he served with Dr. King's father, and he was also a lieutenant for Dr. King. Uh, Dr. King performed the wedding ceremony for my mother and father, and they were, vi they were very close, good friends. Now, they both went to Morehouse. Now, Dr. King graduated from Morehouse. Uh, he was older than my father, uh, but uh, they developed a great relationship. When my father uh, was in seminary, he was one of the organizers of the Atlanta sit-in movement. So my father, along with several other students, they desegregated Atlanta. And, and that was one of his introductions into the, uh, the civil rights movement. So that was around 55, which the same thing was going on over in Montgomery. And so all of these different groups were, were organizing, and eventually SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, came, came about. And, um, so he was there at the origins. He was there at the origins, yes. Yes, he was there at the origins at the, at the building of the organization. And my mother um, worked for SCLC. Uh, she was executive secretary for Wyatt T. Walker. Wyatt T. Walker took over as the executive director so that Dr. King could do the traveling. And so Dr. Walker did all the administration work. And my mother was the administrative assistant to, to Dr. Walker. And 
so there was this network of of people. Uh, you know, and it's really funny talking to my parents. Every day I find out that they had these relationships with people. So uh, one day I was it was years ago I was doing a paper on Fannie Lou Hamer, and I mean just I love Fannie Lou Hamer. And so I'm, you know, talking all this. I found this out about Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, in the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and everything. And they both looked at me and said, oh, yeah, Fannie Lou Hamer is a good friend of ours. I was like, R really? He said, yeah, she used to stay at the house a lot when you were a baby. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, really? Did you grow up paying keen attention to your dad's preaching? Was he a primary influence on you? Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. I mean, I always enjoyed going to church, um, you know, but I was typical PK, you know, wanted to get out of church and, you know, do your own thing and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I always enjoyed my father's preaching. So you learned at the foot of a master. Um, when, then when you went off to seminary, did you feel like that? How did it affect your experience at Yale Divinity School, your preaching, having heard such good preaching growing up? Um, it kind of shifted it. I think that my undergrad experience was my was formative in my preaching development, uh, going to Morehouse College. And I wanted to be a cinematographer. I wanted to be a filmmaker. That, that was my thing. I wanted, I wanted to be a filmmaker. But I was deeply committed to this idea of social justice, uh, being able to communicate ideas in reference to what we are called to do. And, and then every Thursday, we had to go to chapel every just every Thursday. And some of the best... Um, rhetoricians, not just uh, preachers, but some of the best rhetoricians were coming to, to Morehouse every week. And that's who we heard. We had to go to chapel. That was a part of, or you couldn't graduate if you didn't go to chapel. And they kind of changed the chapel around. They called it Crown Form. Uh, the reason it was called Crown Form, it was really named after Howard Thurman. So that uh, Howard Thurman has this quote, uh, uh, that God places a crown above your head that you will spend the rest of your life growing tall enough to wear. Well, Morehouse, when he was at Morehouse speaking, years I wasn't, wasn't around then or anything, but um, when he was at Morehouse, he made the statement that she holds a crown above every student's head. You will spend the rest of your life trying to grow tall enough to wear. And so it became crown form, you know, that this is the place where you're going to learn, you're going to grow, you're going to stretch. And, and so within... You know, one semester, you know, it was Joe Lowry, it was um, um, Dick Gregory, it was, uh, it was Jesse Jackson, um, it was Andrew Young, uh, it was Maynard, uh, Maynard Jackson. You, you name any of the civil rights luminaries, that was a consistent uh, connection on campus. If you would name any of the academics of the day, you know, that that's who we're going to hear. We're going to hear the Cornell West. We're going to, you know, the Tony Morrison's, you know, oh, so you were getting a homiletical education as an undergrad. You present all these great models, but yet the television model is what, you know, pricks the consciousness of so many students. So everybody was trying to imitate what they witnessed on television or what they witnessed, you know, some evangelists do in revival and I call it kind of this revival. And so you ended up with this, very shallow type of preaching, but people were flocking to hear some of these young preachers on campus because they had cute preaching. So it was performative rather than substantive. Performative in the negative way, because I think all preaching is performative. You know, so I, I don't see performance as negative. It's mean when it ceases to be authentic. It, it should be because everything is, is performative. You, I believe that preaching is incarnational that it should it's embodiment of everything that you are. So your movement, your eyes, your pauses, um, your preparation is in itself a, a, a performance of what you have discovered and what you choose and how you edit uh, in the midst of communication is also a part of the, uh, the process. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's when you, um, when, when you witness someone who at a play uh, an actor who you know is not only not well prepared, um, but doesn't believe uh, what they are saying. So they have not embodied the the character. Uh, they are not letting the ideas of that character come you know come apart. And I think that acting is 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 very apropos in reference to to preaching because I'm always amazed by 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 great actors and that they literally can go to places where they lose themselves. 
um, you know, Marlon Brando and method actors know is known for for doing that. You know, the Stella, you know, <laughs> streetcar Nick Desire. Sometimes preachers can assume that performance equals inauthenticity. But what you're saying is that we ought to hone our skills as performers, so long as we're being authentic to the content of the gospel. You have to be authentic, and and it should. I was taught that if it does not excite you in the study, why should it excite anyone in the congregation? If it's not authentic to you, uh, then why should it be authentic to someone else? So if you are preaching a message on the joy of the Lord, and you yourself have never experienced and do not believe in joy, so, so why should I you know, have any type of or the idea of grace? And the sermon that we just heard, just to contextualize again, it was preached a few days after the shooting in Charleston. Right. One of the things you said in the sermon that jumped out at me is you talking about what I think, I think you were saying what, what African-American faith is, what the African-American church is. And you said that we ought not to try and trace the black Protestant tradition back through Europe or immediately make a connection from, say, Trinity to Germany because, simply because Trinity is a Protestant church. If we do that, if we draw a straight line from Trinity to Germany, are we automatically discounting the way God is working through the particularities of the black church experience? Absolutely. So what are those particularities? Well, it there is, and I stated in the message, the that that Africanity and Christianity are really the same thing. Uh, not there is a proclivity for us to view people of African descent as converts to, and not creators of, um, and that there is a theological narrative that comes out of. Africanity and a theological narrative that is deeply within the ancient Christian tradition that is African, uh, number one. Number two is the view within uh, the African-American community is collective, village, connection, community, where within uh, an evangelical perspective, you talk about Jesus being the personal savior. And that's not heavy language in the black church. My personal say because personal savior says you're disconnected from the village. It means that I can be saved and whatever happens to you is fine. Um, where this idea of collective growth, development, and salvation is is a part. Uh, the other piece is that God is uh, flowing and moving uh, and mysterious in operation and cannot be contained through vocabulary. And, and, and that then becomes a part. So the action of how one demonstrates connection to God is not uh, demarcated by Sunday worship. It's, you know, from washing dishes to you know, interacting with your children. It is, it's everything. It's completely integrated. That there is no sacred and secular separation within uh, the, the, the African framing of, 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 of faith. Um, and that God speaks very clearly to those who have their backs against the wall. Uh, those are kind of three you know, important elements. Let's sit with the third for a moment. God speaks very clearly to those who have their backs against the wall. To look at the African-American church experience as a conversion to this European model of Protestantism takes on its own flavor in America, sure, but it's more or less going to be consumed by this larger whole. It's more than just to disrespect or discount what's happening, but it's also to silence the voice of God, right? I mean, that's from James Cone, that God is present at the margin in that suffering. I was wondering about, well, in that sermon, you move then to talk about the forgiveness that the family of the victims of that shooting evidence, those family members in court. And you talked about Chris Matthews, and I didn't see him on television. I didn't see what you were responding to, but you said that he expressed not disbelief, but just a sort of confusion. He was bewildered. Complete confusion. It was complete. He's the most Christian people I've ever seen. Complete, utter confusion. And then other people were trying to do this analysis. Oh, the forgiveness is too quick. And, and people didn't recognize the collective nature of this. Said, what I'm doing is I work through forgiveness. Uh, and this is collect. I refuse 
and this is very much out of uh, a black theological narrative, I refuse to allow you to define my humanity. And that's really what they were saying. So forgive what I, the reason I say forgive is because I cannot carry the weight of your hate. Now, and as one stated said that I'm, 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 I'm a work in progress as one of the family members stated. And they were basically saying that I refuse to allow you to make me, um, a victim at a different level. You know, I, I don't want you to continue to brutalize me. And, and that's what they were saying. They're saying that within our tradition, that forgiveness is not about the other person. It's about me. It's about me saying that I'm not going to give you that much power. And, and, and people miss that. They think that it's, it's a uh, kneeling down and submitting to someone else when in actuality it says it's a very powerful uh, and brave and courageous thing to say, I refuse to allow you to have authority in my life. So this young black man is offering forgiveness. And what we're programmed to see, what we expect him to be, is an angry young black man. And instead we see a gracious... Not just gracious, but we see leadership. The young man, the, the image that I saw that blew me away. Here's a young man, probably 16, 17. He had his arms around both of his little sisters. And he looked in the camera and said, oh, we're going to be all right. And he was incredibly articulate. He was very clear that now, it is now my role to take on the responsibility of raising my two sisters. That's what was being said. So, so I don't have time to spend on Dylan Roof. You know, the, Emmanuel AME was a church that has experienced domestic terror for 200 years. So this, I mean, that, and that's the other thing that people don't understand, that they're part of a congregation that has a history of, experiencing Dylan Roof. And, and that's what people did. I said, you don't realize that this church was already firebombed? You don't realize that this church, the founding member was uh, led the largest slave revolt in the U.S.? And then they put out two of their ministers, the state of South Carolina, refused to let them come back to South Carolina because they were teaching black people to read. Um, so then what we see on the news as an isolated act of a heroic individual, as are these few heroic, incomprehensible individuals, is in fact the fruit of an old tree, right? Very old tree with strange fruit. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's, that's the whole thing, that wrestling with the mystery. And I, and I said the, even the Sunday after that, I, I preached a, uh, uh, a message um, but what I said at the, at the end when, uh, in the text in, in Genesis where it says, what you meant for evil, God, you know, God meant for good. I used the illustration of President Obama. I said, he gave a eulogy. I said, he started preaching. I think I said, I think he went back to the third pew at Trinity uh, all of a sudden. Um, I said, but he's saying amazing grace. I said, now think about this now. Dylan Roof was trying to start a race war, but started a war on racism, uh, what God was doing. Think about this. The president had to fly on Air Force One, brought his cabinet with him, and all of these dignitaries and letters from around the world, what a young man tried to set off as a race war, became a war on race. If this had not happened, Reverend Pinckney would not be elevated to the level, which he always deserved because of his great work, but was elevated to international status. And those who were promoters of the Confederate flag had to pause in the state house to honor the person they had been fighting against for the last 10 years. It, it, it's amazing grace and it's, it, and, and, it's, and, and, and then, then to have the president Sing Amazing Grace. Now, and what's interesting about singing the song Amazing Grace, and, and, and which is America's favorite hymn, but people really don't know the full story of Amazing Grace. Not only was, you know, Newton, uh, you know, he's a slaver. He's, he's um, involved in uh, the trade of black flesh. Uh, and the story goes, supposedly, that the myth is that um, there was a storm and they prayed and the storm stopped. But there's another side to that within the, in the black tradition, because that was a ship that had Africans in the hull, in the bow of the ship. And the story is, is that there was a humming that was in that bow. 
And it was not the prayers of Newton and the sailors, but it was the sound of the Africans that made its way to heaven. And the angels bent over and said, stop the storm so we can hear the song. And what's interesting about Amazing Grace uh, is that you know it is the only uniquely American hymn because of its structure. The words are European, but the music is pentatonic, is from the is African. So you cannot play Amazing Grace without black keys. It'll be grace, but it won't be amazing, <laughs> is, is the unique thing. So you really truly have the, the one hymn that whether you are secular, you're an atheist, an agnostic. Um, and I was talking to a minister who was in Canada, and he was saying that he, he was doing research on John Coltrane. He was at some folk festival. He said there was a lot of secular people, but when they closed out the festival, they sang Amazing Grace because it was the one song everybody knew. And, and so the president was singing a song that spoke to liberation but spoke to the heart of what black faith is all about. Even in the bow of the ship, our song has the power to stop storms. <laughs> it must have been quite a moment for Trinity to see the president, I think, publicly for the first time since he was at Trinity, to see him lead from his faith, to see him embrace his faith so publicly. It must have been a healing moment for your congregation. It, it, was, it, was, it was beautiful because it was really funny because on Twitter, it, Twitter was blowing up. You know, the, tw the Trinity Twitter was blowing up. And it said, oh, there he goes. He's back at Trinity. <laughs> and so it was really funny. Said, it said it didn't leave him. He said, he, I, I tweeted this. I said, the president left his church, but the church didn't leave him. <laughs> it was my little tweet. And it was just quite funny because everybody in the congregation, and when I made that statement at church, church blew apart because everybody knew it. everybody was thinking it and I just articulated what everybody was already thinking we you learned for the 20 years you were here under the leadership of Dr. Wright uh in the mix of a church that was unashamedly black unapologetically Christian one that uh recognized that Christian and Africanity are merged together and all of a sudden it in the worst of times the worst time the greatness and power of grace that was forged in the hull of the ship came out. I hope that was a healing moment, a reconciliation for him too. Let's talk about Trinity. So you were a relatively young man when you assumed that grand pulpit. And for those of our listeners who aren't Chicagoans, Trinity is one of the flagship churches in our city, certainly one of the flagship churches in our nation. What did it feel like to get that call? I was, well, we kind of worked through it. I was 30, uh, 34 uh, when we start talking wow. about it. Well, one of the things I've been struck by here in Chicago is, I mean, it's a testimony to your gifts to step into a world historical, un, unusual moment in the life of a church transitionally. It's a testimony to grace. The grace with which Trinity and you have met that moment is remarkable because in any situation, Following a beloved, long-standing pastor who's been there for decades is hard. It is hard. It's hard for the people. It's hard on you. It's hard. On, I mean, just to be honest, it's just, it is, I would never wish the experience I had when I came on my worst enemy, in all honesty, because, and it was not, it, to have, it's one thing, you, you expect it to be hard, it, cha transitions are challenging, no matter what. I expected that. But to... To add on the external aspects of, you know, a member who's running for president and death threats and, you know, all, all this kind of stuff. We're going to bomb your church and then you're having to get security and then, you know, the FBI is being brought in. It's like, you know, it's like every day. Oh, we got a call. We got an emergency. You know, we've got to put your family in a different location. You know, I mean, it's, it was nuts. It was absolutely nuts. I'm like, well, I just got here. You know, it's like, I've only been here a few months and it's like. I've got to deal with all that. Meanwhile, you know, you're, you're following a legend and you're trying to keep some degree of, you know, normalcy within within the congregation in the midst of utter ins insanity. And introduce yourself. Introduce yourself. And you got all this stuff going on. And so you've got these deep fears in the congregation because people are scared. They don't know what's going to happen. Is the church going to fall apart? Are we, you know, um, they're attacking somebody that they deeply love and, um, you know, we've got 40 outlets outside the church every Sunday. People, mics being stuck into people's faces. They were calling, they got a hold of our sick and shut in list, and they start calling. 
people, some are even in hospice, you know, they're like, can you give me a quote about Dr. Wright? You know, I was like, this is crazy. They're recording conversations during the altar call. So that people are, we're, we're praying on our knees and you have someone with a, with an electric mic recording people. Oh, that's so invasive. It, it was, it was sickening. It was really a sick, just, and I, it's nothing but the grace of God that we, and I don't really even, sometimes it just blows me away that we, we made it through without literally imploding. Pressure was just uh, enormous. It must have been infuriating because then you had the media so close, literally the most intimate moment that can happen in a church witnessing. And then they turn around with an outrageously distorted nature of the church and what's happening, even though they've been as close as they can get. When we were out in Boston, because I'd worked with Reverend Wright on some labor issues here in Chicago, I'd been down to Trinity several times, met with folks in the congregation, met with him, and I was always greeted with the most gracious welcome and a collaborative spirit, enjoyed working with him on things. I mean, I was coming from this tiny little church on the other side of the city, and he was always so kind and welcoming, and we couldn't have accomplished what we were trying to do without Trinity's help. It was just the church was in Dr. Wright. We're both just gracious every step of the way. Anyhow, then I'm out there just a year later reading about, you know, the Boston Globe or whatever, some reliable newspaper, reading about how he's a separatist and a hate monger. I mean, it was frustrating to me. It must have driven you crazy. Crazy. Absolutely. And I found out that we had to bring in people who were kind of, you know, could kind of lecture and share with, you know, kind of media strategists and tell you, first of all, most stories are written, especially in the political environment, before they even interview you. So they're just trying to decide. They're deciding whether you're going to be the villain or whether you're going to be the hero, or you're going to be the victim, or you're going to be the victimizer. Um, one, in a political environment. So there, there's, no, there's no objectivity. There's no such thing as an objective writer. Uh, the, the other thing that was just um, uh, really uh, strange that we really had to, you know, to, to, to come to grips with is that media, the media is primarily, they're fundamentalists. So when they hear something, they hear it as a literalist. They don't understand metaphor. Uh, they have no idea what a simile is. Uh, they, they, you know, they, they, have, they, they have no understanding of, of hyperbole. They have nothing. They have no understanding about drama, you know, none of this. They, they, they are completely, utterly ignorant of the church, of church language. But then they're even triply ignorant around African-American uh, church communication, church um, life. And so you use a metaphor, um, you know, you know um, let's say if you, know, you use an Isaiah, they that wait upon the Lord, um, shall renew their strength and might up with the wings as eagles. You know, it's like, and the preacher said that uh, people are going to grow wings. This is completely scientifically impossible. You know, I mean, it's like, wait a minute. You know, do, do, what, who are these people? And then they don't have people on staff. So then they bring in the political reporter who is in a secular framing, or they bring in a, an academic who's never had any experience in uh, dealing with uh, a community outside of his own particular community. And they are so far off base. I'm like really fascinated by the stuff that they would say. It's like, Really? Are, are you all that dense? So I was talking to the religion editor of the New York Times on a something totally unrelated to me, a question he was asking about a friend of mine. And when we got done with the interview, I asked him, um, why don't you ever cover the mainline church? I mean, that's got to, out of the religious readers of the, of the New York Times, that's got to comprise a pretty significant portion, right? And he said to me, well, you never do anything interesting, which is illustrative of the kind of uh, fact that they don't really understand faith, I think, the, the, the journalists don't. So do you think that stepping into that chaotic moment at Trinity, did it fast-track your bond with the congregation? It did. It, it did. Uh, it, it cut the time. It made a very traumatic bonding. You know, you, you kind of bond in trauma. Uh, but yeah, I, that, that's interesting that you would say that, because I've actually said that to me. I said that the the trauma forced us to develop a bond, um, you know, a trust that uh, normally would take years to kind of develop, you know, as pastorates go. We were forced to do things in a, in, a, in a crucible moment that, again, I would never wish it on my worst enemy because I would never want anyone to have those kinds of sleepless nights and for your family to feel that way. 
Your own family was threatened. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We we had to collect all of the the hate mail and the hate emails and the, record all the calls, and we had to send those to. Um, it had to be sent to local police. Had to be sent to uh, FBI. Had to be sent to uh, Secret Service. You know, they have to check and see if anything is a credible threat. Da da da. da all of that. So that became a. It, it was weird because then after you're doing this for a while, it becomes normal, mm-hmm. and it's really problematic when you've normalized threats. I was just thinking, poor Monica, being a preacher's spouse is enough of a challenge. Ah, you know, my, my, my wife had to, you know, bear so much of that because, um, I mean, she took it like a trooper, but, you know, I don't know if I can ever, I can never tell her how much I love her and care about her because she kept things normal for as much as possible for the kids. We just moved there. You know, so, I mean, my kids are small. Have you found that Chicago, as opposed to the South, to be to be a move from a, a relatively Christian culture to a, a post-Christian environment? You know, I think for, for us, it is because the migration for, for those on the South side is primarily Mississippi. So 70% of the people on the South side of Chicago are from Mississippi. So I like, I call it Northern Mississippi. You know, that's where we live. So... A lot of the uh, vestiges, the, the the residue of, of 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 a faith community, still rest, even if those who are not even a part of it. You know, it's like, look, I may not go to church, but you. I mean, let me put it this way: if you have a member in your family who could be who claims, and I always say, you know, there there are no black atheists. You know, they don't exist. They 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 say they are, but uh, so they really don't exist. Um, that's just kind of a running joke, but. Um, they, you know, they're like, they're agnostic or whatever. If someone in their family stops going to church, they get real nervous. <laughs> it's like, wait, 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 wait. I don't go. You're supposed to go. I'm, I'm the non-believer of the family here. You know, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. It's a really interesting dynamic. This Pew study that just came out, it's caused a panic in the white Protestant church. You know, it traces the continual, and I know people are tired of talking about this, but the continual decline in the main line. The one area in that study, I'm sure you saw this, the one area which isn't in decline, it's African-American Protestant churches. So what's the secret? I don't know if it's a secret, but I think it's, it's, it's cultural. So that, um, as I mentioned before, this idea of integrating sacred and secular, if you have a member in your family who could be who claims and I always say you know there there are no black atheists you know they don't exist they 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 say they are but uh, so they really don't exist um, that's just kind of a running joke but um, they you know they're like they're agnostic or whatever if someone in their family stops going to church they get real nervous <laughs> it's like wait 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 I don't go you're supposed to go I'm I'm the non-believer of the family here you know don't 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 do that. If you were to go to a historically black college graduation, when people graduate, it moves from traditional graduation to almost a revival service. I mean, that's just, it's a part of the culture. So you will hear amens and thank you, Jesus. I mean, this child hasn't been to church ever, you know, but, but he will walk across the stage and say, thank you, Jesus. You know, so there is a, there is a deep spiritual connection a belief that God operates within and that everything that we are connected to uh, is a painting of the divine, has the fingerprints of the divine on it. And so I think it translates into the vibrancy of, of the church. We, we have not yet uh, been, uh, we've not succumbed to uh, the, uh, the tragedy of the enlightenment we were recovering that which the Enlightenment tried to take away. The Enlightenment, in many ways, was uh, the the philosophical underpinnings for the justification of chattel slavery. Uh, you know, high level of self interest, this idea of market values. Um, so there's a bone deep learned resistance to Enlightenment values, whereas a church like mine is going to look at the Enlightenment and say, of course, yeah, every individual ought to have a right to self-determination. I can outthink the Bible. And then we get so deeply in bed with those values that we become irrelevant. 
Meanwhile, the black church is going to be suspicious of some of those basic enlightenment assumptions straight out of the gate. Suspicious or just completely ignore it. So where the rest of the world is saying, is it conservative? Is it liberal? You know, is it fundamental? And it's like, well, we're not even a part of the argument. You know, we're coming from a, a completely different cultural place. Uh, so, so the pressures that are causing the decline of the mainline. It hasn't caught up to us yet. The renewal and vibrancy within the mainline church is when the mainline church integrates uh, when I say integrate, I'm talking about kind of culturally with um, African-American, Latino, uh, Korean, bringing those elements. Um, and then musically, I look at, I'm not a huge fan of his preaching, uh, but if you were to go to a Joel Osteen worship service, which cracks me up, I haven't been to one, uh, just mentioned that, uh, but uh, I've you know, seen him on TV, is that he then infuses, not through his preaching, but through the worship, Israel Houghton, uh, who is his music minister, uh, the, the, the bringing together of Latino and African elements in music, which in order to construct that music, you got to know the pentatonic scale, in order to construct that music, you have to have the spiritual base. And all of a sudden, um, it becomes something that speaks to middle-class Texans. <laughs> said, you know, there's something missing in my church. What, what is it? I was like, well, you, you need to get, get back to the base. It's, it's black people speaking to you. It's Latinos people speaking to you. And the same thing happened in England. So the British invasion in the U.S., is spurred by black blues singers in Mississippi. You know, so they get they they connect with the spirituality. We're already secular, but all of a sudden these 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 working class kids in Liverpool and other places on the East End are influenced by a spirituality that again is that 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 African said this speaks to us. So we spoke a bit earlier about the development of your own voice and the people under whose tutelage you grew up as a preacher. When you first started preaching, did you feel like you had your own style right out of the gate? No, not, not at all. It took me years to develop a style. I, I was constantly emulating and imitating someone else. Um, when I first started preaching, um, I was so enamored with a gentleman by the name of Charles Adams. Charles Adams, is in, he still pastors in Detroit. Absolutely brilliant preacher. Uh, manuscript preacher. Uh, they call him the Harvard Hooper. Uh, in uh, Ebony Magazine, they you know put the 15 greatest uh, preachers in there. And interestingly enough, you know Charles Adams was in there. My father was in there, uh, along with Jeremiah Wright was in there also. You know these are, these are the people that I that I know that have influenced my preaching. Um, but Adams did something that was unique. Adams was was a writer, but he had this amazing theological alliteration. So. He could take words and do this alliteration, but it wasn't just so that the words were flowing poetically, as some people do with alliteration. He was actually dealing with theological ideas. So one of the sermons that is very famous that he, he does is called Drunk on the Eve of Reconstruction, about Noah getting drunk, on the, he says, on the eve of the world being recreated. And he does this amazing piece talking about how humanity has so often been drunk uh, when there are great possibilities. And he walks through, interestingly enough, when he closes out this message, he walks through from almost Genesis to the gospel of all of the people God could not depend on. Uh, he says, he said he thought that Abraham has his wonderful voice, and Abraham, uh, but Abraham couldn't do it because he tried to pimp his wife, and he, you know, <laughs> and he just goes, he just keeps going down. He said Jacob couldn't do it because he was a con man. You know, he keeps on, he just goes this wonderful alliteration. He says Moses, no, not Moses, because he was a convicted murderer, and he just kind of goes on and on. And Samson, Samson had too many problems with women, and da, 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 da. he goes and goes and goes and goes and goes, and then he says, and eventually God had to say. Since I can't find anyone I can depend on, I will go myself. <laughs> and, you're, and you're, by that time, he's walked you through. In one sentence, you, you're given biblical characters framed from a very different perspective. Not holy, but as problematic human beings. And then he says, and God said, I will go myself because of my depth and love of humanity. And I was sitting there like, 
this guy's bad. It's like, it's like, he's amazing. And then you get the incarnation, right? It's like, oh my gosh. You know, so so I would hear Adams and, and he used to come to Morehouse a lot and they'd preach, I would want to be like him. Then I heard, I heard him when I was small, Dr. Gardner C. Taylor, and the father would have him preach. And Dr. Taylor, for anyone who has not heard Dr. Taylor, if you were to take the most, take the actor James Earl Jones and then rap his voice, even though Dr. Taylor was, did not have his voice was not as deep and resonant, but wrap it in Shakespearean poetry, then you would have Gardner C. Taylor. So Gardner C. Taylor, he preaches this sermon, and he has this way of talking when he speaks, you know. Uh, he's, he's, he just recently passed, and it was one of my favorite. And he's considered to be, bar none, was the greatest living, when he was living, the greatest preacher that, you know, in our tradition, we considered him, they, they called him the dean of black preaching, and he was called the prince of the pulpit. He, he did this message called Never. Uh, he talked about... And in scripture, it says, and God will never leave you nor forsake you. And he walked from that scripture talking about all of the moments where it never appears, not only scripturally, but in our lives. Uh, he said, and, and you thought that he would drop you, but God is always saying, never, never, I will never leave you or forsake you. But he does this thing at the very end. And he was probably in his 70s when I heard him preach this. He said, I must bid you farewell. I feel the mist of Jordan upon my face. I am pitching my tent closer to the river. And even when that time comes, when those angels shall scoop me up and carry me across, I know a God who will say never. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then he goes on into another gear where he walks you through the fact that... Um, all of the challenges that you face, that even in death, because here you have someone who is, as he says, I'd already purchased my plot. I know where I will be buried, but I know my God says never. <laughs> and so he ends up saying, never, when you are going through and the floods have washed away all of your hope, never. And so he's doing this for like five, five, eight minutes. And then he stops. And in the entire hall, you hear people shouting, never, 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 all over the place. Oh, my. It was unbelievable. You know, it's like, wow, that's, that's preaching. Wow. Did it take a while to synthesize all of these influences? Oh, gosh, yes. Every, every week, it was, I was somebody new. It was like every week, my, my, my wife was like, oh, you're Frank Reed this week? Oh, you tried to go to tail this week? Oh, you're da your dad this week? Oh, okay. She was always, she always pinned it. She, always, she knew who I liked. But I think that's good. Young preachers that I've spoken with can feel very apologetic about trying on different voices mm -hmm. because trying on different voices can feel inauthentic. But to know that a, a, a preacher as great as yourself... Well, that's kind of say that. Well, it's true. A preacher as great as yourself has done this. That can be liberating for younger preachers. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's true of any art form, right? You don't just become who you are. No. And that's what a good musician does. I mean, you think about it, you know, that any good jazz musician, they're playing the licks of somebody else until they find their voice. Uh, that's what Thelonious Monk did. That's, you know, what Miles did. You know, that's what Coltrane did. Um, any great athlete, they're, you're, you're emulating somebody until you find, and I, and I had trouble because, you know, you know, I, my father was an amazing influence and this larger than life figure in the preaching world and especially in the black Baptist preaching world. And so I wanted to find my voice and I never had the, the kind of slow pacing because I'm not from Troop County, Georgia. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. You're fast. I grew up under hip hop. So, so hitting those hooks and couplets is what I what I found out that that's me. Um, he came out of a, of a much you know kind of a soul blues tradition, so it it flow, it's a different flow. It's a, it's a very different flow. But then I'm always playing with different styles. I never want you know a lot of times you get caught up into kind of the things that you do. Um, but I'm always trying to do something like I did last year. I did a true first person piece where I like became David. 
um, you know, had the outfit and I had to stay in character like the whole service and in between services. And it was, it was completely utterly exhausting. It was when I, when I finished that day, I literally passed out and went home. I mean, after the three services, because I was dealing with David and his failure to protect Tamar. So I was the, the I was speaking as David was sharing information to the fathers of the the congregation and to the daughters and he was apologizing saying you know apologizing saying that uh, being a political leader was more important than being a father and a parent. Um, He's an intense character to take on. One of our preachers just preached a sermon during Mental Health Month about David being bipolar, manic highs, these desperate lows in the Psalms. To assume that character. I've always been fascinated with David, and I usually do a sermon every year on Tamar. So I do a, I do a rape sermon every year, um, and uh, which is a very hard sermon to do, but come to find out that you have so many people who are victims of some type of violation, and I want to be true to ministering to everyone in the congregation. And this is always somebody new. Every year you think, you know, like, oh, I'll never do it again. And you realize, no, there's somebody who has not heard that. And, and I always include in the message, I always include, I uh, said uh, that, I, that I'm, we are sorry. I said, you need to hear this from a male voice and a male voice from the pulpit when it was many times that those draped uh, in the ecclesiastical uh, robes who covered up the violation. Uh, and that is what is affirming to a lot of people to know that they, that, you know, they've heard, they've rarely heard from a male voice, whether they, whether it's a male that was violated or a woman, they've rarely heard from a male voice in the church to say that not only do I apologize for all of those who refused, but you have a story. And I end out the story. He's like, you know, how do you have a celebration around rape? You know, there's no way to have, how do you end it? And so the, the, what the, the good news piece that I use in the, in, in that message is Tamar um, puts on sackcloth and ashes and kind of using a womanist, um, exegetical piece around that. I learned from Emily Towns and M. Sean Copeland, who were professors that, uh, of mine, of you know, how do you examine the text from the perspective of, of a womanist? Um, and said, she puts on sackcloth and ashes. So she's indicating to everyone, even though she doesn't have voice, that something's not right in the palace, which she is laying claim to the fact that I do have a voice. And I said, the problem is that we really don't know. She says she lived it with her brother and as, as a desolate woman, as one text says, but we really don't know if she ever changed clothes. And that's when I said, I said, you are called to put on your sackcloth and ashes. You are never called to cover up the violation. You are never called in any way or shape or form. He said, but make sure you don't wear those clothes forever because then your violation becomes the definition of who you are and not just a portion of the totality of your story. I think about how powerfully, I mean, it's impossible for me to put myself in their shoes, obviously, but how powerfully healing for the women in your congregation that must be. So I told the story of my sister who, um, and it's a whole other me message, because my sister was, um, uh, she had paranoid schizophrenia, schizophrenia. Uh, but she's the one that really kind of you know influenced me. Next to my father is my is my, is my, my sister, because she was uh, really into African American literature, and she used to read to me like James Baldwin and Zora Neale Hurston. And she's much older. Yeah, she's much older. So when I was a kid, those are my those are my good bedtime stories, you know, uh, from her. And I didn't realize, but I didn't really know what you know what they were. She would find some nice little pieces to read, and then I get to college and I realize I know all these people, but I didn't know I knew these people because of her. And she was a brilliant poet. She was an amazing writer. And she introduced me. And that's why I have such a deep love for, for this writing. And so I told the story about how she, you know, her room was next to mine. And uh, she came home from college and she was uh, 
really happy she'd met this you know, young man. I was like, oh, she's happy. Next summer she comes back, and I'm much younger. I'm nine years younger than she is. You know, so I'm a little kid, and uh, she's she's sad. You know, I'm like, why is she sad? She's crying in her room. And I was like, what's going on? You know, I said, no, little brother, you don't need to know, you know, so-and-so, you know, you know, basically broke up with her, you know, it was a bad breakup. I said, well, tell me where he lives. I'll get on my bike. I'll go over there. You know, <laughs> that's what little brothers do. I said, no, 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 I got it. I'll take care of it. So she pretty much for the summer, she was like depressed. And of course she's, you know, she's dealing, I knew that she was dealing with the mental illness. I didn't know how to articulate it, but I knew that something wasn't right with my sister, that she's going through these super highs and lows. There's a whole nother story about how, um, she got into therapy. Um, I started acting out. Um, my parents uh, were going to take me to a counselor. I said, oh, "Fine." When I got in with the counselor, I said, "I can. O- I will only." No, they said, "I will only come if the whole family comes." That's what I said. You know, I was like, like not ten or something, and and I told the counselor I was worried about my sister, and then the counselor, you know, asked me to step out. Sister came in, and she said that you know. Your son, your son's all right, but we need to get your daughter in therapy. I'd assume that your acting out was really an expression of her suffering. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I was, I was an utter fool. I was, I was, I was, I was acting a fool with, with my. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Um, you know, no kid should be just acting, just just acting out the way I was. Um, but that's how she started, you know, to get her help and uh, medication and you know all of that. Um, and she had, you know, really rough battle with it. But I remember the, you know, when the summer she came home and she was, um, uh, she was crying in, in the room next to me. She was really going through this low period. And then one, one day she was, uh, she was doing good. And I was like, well, what happened? She's like, well, the Lord spoke to me. I was like, well, the Lord say it was like, well, I was listening to the music and I said, oh, you listening to some gospel music? She's like, no, so listening, uh, music. It was a disco song that came on. I was like. God doesn't speak through disco songs, Daphne. That that doesn't work. And she says, "No, no, no, little brother. I was listening to the, um, you know, old school, you know, jams on, uh, I think it was WZZAK in, in Cleveland um, on Sunday night, and, and an old school song came on. Um, I was like, God doesn't speak through old school songs like that. I said, No, this one, God did. Uh, I was literally at the lowest moment until this song by Gloria Gaynor came on." At first, I was afraid. <laughs> I was petrified. And, you know, she went through the whole thing of, of I will survive. And so at the end of the mess, I tell the story. And then I close out with Gloria Gaynor. I will survive. And the choir and the musicians start singing. I said, the beauty is, is that you're a survivor. And at that moment, I asked for an invitation for every survivor join us at the altar. But already we had the domestic violence ministry and our, you know, rape crisis counselors were already at the altar. And these women are turned around to fate, not facing, you know, the altar, they're facing the congregation because they're counselors. And so what was overwhelming is the number. I mean, this was not, you know, you're expecting maybe 20 or hundreds of people. It was just, it was like masses of people just came to the altar uh, weeping and shouting and joyous, and we are singing, I Will Survive. <laughs> so Gloria Gaynor becomes this moment to, to accentuate the gospel. And then we go into I Need You to Survive, the song that uh, um, you know, Hezekiah Walker writes, uh, uh, I won't harm you with the words from my mouth. I need you to survive. You pray for me, I pray for you. I need you to survive. And it was an absolutely transformative experience in worship um, because it, it, you know, preaching should not be just what someone says. It should be inclusive of everybody in, in, in the worship moment. Should that, uh, you know, some people are visual, some people are auditory, some people are tactile. Um, and understand I call the jazz narrative of worship that we're always practicing for the improvisational Holy Spirit moments. We don't know when it comes but we've done enough work on our scales <laughs> to know that we can take a shift, not just the preacher, but, but everybody, and be ready for those moments when we're forced to shift. How's your sister? Oh, she, she passed. She, she, yeah, she, she committed suicide when uh, I was uh, 20, it was a 20, 23. 
23. It was uh, right before I turned 24. Uh, oh, that's rough. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a it's a challenging thing. It took me a long time to kind of get through uh, that, and even actually be able to preach on it and write about it. Uh, just kind of you know you keep these things hidden. But now I I talk about it as much as I can because so many people have have dealt with that. Because you know when someone commits suicide, that um, it's the people around them that are deeply affected. And most people are taught to bury it, don't talk about it. Um, but I have, you know, finally come in, in, at this point in my life where, I, where I, I'm proud to talk about it. Not not that tragedy, but because she was such an incredible human being, so brilliant. And, you know, my love of Flannery O'Connor and James Baldwin, Zora Neale Hurston, August Wilson, all of these that comes from her. She stamped that on you as a child. Yeah. So my, you know, I always want to be a writer. You know, you know, I don't think I'm a very good writer, but I love writing. Um, I've always loved poetry. Been, you know, because it's it's her influence in writing poetry, and many times writing has I write sermons. I write with a in kind of a, a poetic uh, perspective. So her voice is still with you. I'm just thinking about your ability to use your own loss and your own recovery from it, you know, and, and the integration of that pain to use it to minister to. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I wasn't always there. I was. I would. I would stay away from the plague. You know, you hear with somebody I would would not share um, because I was still recovering and dealing with shame around it and didn't even know it. And, and had to come to grips with my own shame because it was still there. And I, it was st- I had to work through all of this, the, the web of the shame. We worked so hard, right, to get into the pulpit, to get that truth into the pulpit. And those Sundays like the one you were talking about with the rape survivors in your congregation where it's so apparent that the presence of Christ is alive and well in the sanctuary, there's, there's nothing more powerful than that. But I do think we always have to keep mindful of the fact that that experience is just for a couple of hours a week at best. Yes, yes, that that that's it. You know, that's all that's all you get. And um, there are greater influences, and hopefully, maybe through God's grace, not necessarily the preaching, but there's something in that village community moment that covers people, and allows them to wipe away. I always have the image of life as, you know, Paul talks about looking through a glass darkly, but really more like a window with a lot of dirt on it. And that at church, you have small panes like you do in the window here. And maybe you can get a little bit of the dirt off and someone can see more light. But the problem is, is that the, uh, you know, the glass in itself is, is, is beveled and waveled, you know, it, 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 it is also fractured and, and, and still, even if it's clear, you don't quite see appropriately. And yet there are these moments where it blinds you. Yes. Yeah. And so that's, I think that's always the thing we will never, we'll never quite see clearly, just hopefully that we'll just get more light in the room. That's a beautiful way to end Otis. Thank you so much for being here, for being so open, being yourself in this conversation. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hooper and Steve Thornby. 